Welcome to another episode of Distry. My name is Kirk from Walrus Carp, and tonight we are on part two of our Alice in Wonderland, the attraction over in Disneyland episode. In the previous episode, we talked about concept, the book, the film, as well as the walkthrough attraction. But now we are stepping into the ideation and creation of the physical ride that we have today before the refurbishments that happened in uh, 83 and then in 2014. So right now we're looking at 1958 when the ride actually opens in Disneyland. With me as always is Kate, the oh-so-historical Cicerone. Kate, how you doing this evening? I've, I've had like three other lines and I was like, you can't say that, you can't say that, and you can't say that. So, hi, Kate. Yeah. Thank you for that. Excited to dig into this particular section in this episode because we get to see how exactly they brought the movie to life in the attraction. And maybe some things that they shouldn't have done, but did anyway, and then things that changed later, which we'll get into in the next episode. But um, I'm very excited to see exactly how they translated the movie into the ride in this in this episode. So, um. Where we left off in our last episode in this Alice series was we were talking about the original idea for the attraction, which was a walkthrough version where you would, it was kind of like a fun house. They had mirrors, they had revolving containers that you walk through, they had a lot of mazes, they had a rotating platform under the dodo bird. So we were talking about all of these things and some of those pieces of it do end up moving into this 1958 attraction. But let's kick it off with um, this. I have a description from, I think it was just promotional materials for Alice in Wonderland and Fantasyland. And it said, it called it an exciting new attraction in the happiest kingdom of them all. Travel down the rabbit hole to see Alice's thrilling dreams come to life. Through the oversized chamber and the upside down room, visit the Mad Hatter and his wild tea party, the March Hare, Cheshire Cat, and White Rabbit. Experience the astounding adventures from this famous story. So, do we want to start with a, some of the concept art for this, Kirk? I don't have much concept art, but I do have, uh, there's, there's a colorized version of this as well, but I have this one. I'm sure you saw this one as well. Yeah. So... This is really interesting. This attraction was largely designed by Claude Coates since he had worked on the film, which we discussed as alongside Mary Blair and Ken Anderson and a few others. Um, but he joked that he said he went from 12-inch high format to 18 feet high. And and one thing before you jump in, a big part of this, you got to remember Claude Coates was also ideations for Haunted Mansion. And through that researching, was a fan, even as a kid, of going on spook houses in carnival spook houses were again we had talked about the creations of dark rides the pretzel system uh which was on electrified rails so all of these concepts of things that he loved grew up with is kind of the the benchmark foundation for how this dark ride gets created because we already had pinocchio same exact style ride system we learned about all of this in if you if you want to go back to our Pinocchio kind of micro series we talk about those ride vehicles I also want to say about Claude Coates as a person a lot of people kind of call him somebody who's kind of like a quiet person who's very flexible um, and fun to work with because of that um, I think Bob Gurr I have a, a quote here from him he said the attraction 
was not very understandable. It was a series of gags all done in uh, April and May of 1958. It was a fascinating experience working with Claude because he was so flexible and he would come up with so many designs and plan view arrangements per hour. So he was a really hard worker. He was a little bit quiet. He was six foot six. So he was a tall guy. And um, so he got a lot of like ribbing for that. I have a picture of him standing next to all of the other Imagineers. He's the tallest one in this. <laughs> I think they're at NASA in this doing some research, but um, he is, he was a very, very tall gentleman. And when Walt Disney pulled up, I think in the stagecoach, he was riding in the stagecoach and Claude Coates wanted to get in and Walt Disney said, no, you'll ruin the scale because he was so large. <laughs> so he wouldn't let him get in. He was like a gentle giant, I think is how I like to think of Claude Coates. If you will. If you will, he he really was very like a thoughtful person, but he wasn't afraid to stand up for what he believed in. And I really love that about him. Um, there was, who was it? Marty Sklar? No, it was Ke Ken Rafford, uh, Kevin Rafferty was trying to present something to this like board of advisors to try to get this idea passed. And it was a, it was a good idea. Um, I'm trying to think, remember what it was for, but he was trying to present this idea and he went in with Claude Coates next to him and uh, he was presenting this idea and Claude and they nobody listened to him. They were just like all ignoring him and like, you know, the equivalent of like being on their phones and like completely like whatever, who is this guy? I don't want to give him the time of day. And Kevin was still pretty new at Imagineering at that point. So he, he was like, thank you for your time. And they left and like Claude like <laughs> pulled him aside and he's like, no, you need to go back in there because your idea is really good and you need to, they need to listen to you. So you need to, you need to step up. So he like was not afraid to stand up for what he believed in. And so just to give you a little background about the person who designed this attraction, this is the kind of person he was. He stood up for what he believed in, but he was also a kind and flexible person and almost everybody had good word, good things to say about him when they worked with him. So Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So that's Claude Coates. He was the main designer for the attraction. Um, he also had help from Colin Campbell, Blaine Gibson, and Ken Anderson, and uh, Bob Gurr, of course, for helping with the vehicles a little bit. Um, a lot of the scenes for this attraction were taken directly from the film, um, The and the ride guest became Alice. Like we talked about in the ride or the walkthrough, we actually did see Alice in the attraction in a bottle and, you know, in various places. But... At this point, the ride guest became Alice. You are moving like Alice through these spaces was the idea. Um, and do you want to show a picture of the housing where the building they ended up putting this? Yeah. Fantasy? Yeah. Let me pull that back up. So the ride space, because they had originally planned to put this next to Snow White, and they ended up using that for the Fantasyland Theater, uh, you can see in this picture here that um, they the carousel is kind of an anchor point there. And you can see the building that's kind of like an L shape on the side of it was where they were originally going to put uh, the other side was going to put um, Snow White. And then next to it would have been, um, yes, would have been um, Alice in Wonderland. But because they put Fantasyland Theater there and they didn't put this in in 1955 because of budget cuts, they had to put it somewhere. So they ended up doing an extension built onto the rear of the building that had Peter Pan's Flight and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which is how they made this into Disney's first ever two-story attraction, because a good portion of it actually goes over Mr. Toad's Wild Ride inside that building, which is such an efficient use of space, quite which Disneyland is known for. 
Um, so construction on this ride began in 1957. And I, I do have some concepts for the queue before we get what we have now. And I think that was in, Kirk, I think you had some high resolution pictures of it because there was um, a... Well, okay, so this is this is a split one, but I do have the the bifold, but it's not as good because if you if you got it split, you're not going to be able to see this entire yeah the entire queue so, area. So this is the first idea that Claude Coates had of the queue for Alice in Wonderland, and it would have been an English countryside. I don't know if you want to read any of the things it says there. Austin Wonderland live through designed by uh, Wed. Enterprises, Disneyland Inc. Over here it says Alice in Wonderland. There's a ticket booth. There's a turnstile. Then you would enter and go over a tiny little cobblestone style uh, stone bridge over a waterway. And then you would notice there are several trees and tunnels. And that's where you would board uh, the ride vehicle, which would go directly into the rabbit hole, which goes underneath uh, a very, very large tree. And then when you're exiting, you go through... Uh, a turnstile past uh, the hedge maze, which is the very, very last section of the attraction, and another thatched roof housing on the left-hand side. Yeah, so much more elaborate than what we see in 1958. Um, so if you want to keep that up, I'll show them a picture of what we actually ended up with for a queue um, in 1958. And it's it's not nearly as elaborate. So you can see... There is a ticket booth that's a, a mushroom, which we'll talk about in a minute. There's some leaves. Um, there's just, there's not much. It ends up being this garden where the idea is you've been shrunk down to a three-inch size. And uh, there's a good aerial view of what it looked like as well. So the key personally not much. I personally like the man's foot being used as a break. Oh. My principle. <laughs> I love that one here. Yeah. He's just chilling with the uh, on the front of the caterpillar. So, um, it did. There was another concept though in there about a rabbit hole for the queue. So there was the idea of like this. There would be a more pronounced down the rabbit hole area. That was that was that was the theme of the area. Was not there is, certainly is the rabbit hole in the queue area now, but it was a little bit more pronounced where you see the white rabbit and all these kinds of things. So. That was um, one of the early concepts as well. For the I like how in the other section, it's showing the dual levels. And it's like, these people are clearly, they. I, I don't know what year they were from. This is probably <laughs> in the 80s because it looks like a guy with like a sweater over his shoulder. And then, uh, and then showing the leaf ramp and then the rabbit hole in the potter. Because <laughs> that definitely wasn't when it was first created. There's no way. Nobody was dressing like that in the 50s. That's straight up 80s, yuppie. Like, all you need is a Walkman and you're good. Well, yeah, the the woman has pants on. So that's the number one indicator that it was definitely not the 50s and 60s. Because women didn't do that as often back then. So what we actually did get was not only... We got this outdoor garden consist consisting of these enormous stylized vines and blades of grass. Um, the blades of grass... I think they're largely misattributed to Mary Blair, although she did make a lot of things that he took from. So you can see some of them here. This is one of Claude Coates' backgrounds, and you can see the the stylized, like curvy leaves are in that in his background. So 
that was definitely a Claude Coates invention, although I, I think he'd had inspiration from Mary Blair because they all kind of worked as a team on the film. Especially uh, the, the color treatment because Claude did a lot of, uh, utilized a lot of Mary's in that as well. For sure. They also had, you can see this pretty well in that picture there, they had kind of uh, multicolored gravel and small shrubs underneath the giant stylized leaves. But something we used to have, but we don't have anymore, are the dandelions. And the dandelions, I'm really sad that we don't have them anymore because they're pretty neat looking. Um, I think there was four of them. You can see them in this picture here. But they were these gigantic dandelions. And I think we lost them in the 1983-84 remodel is when they disappeared. But, yeah. Here's, a, here's like a black and white version of them. Mm -hmm. They're it's really cool. Yeah, they're really fascinating. And I'm super sad that they don't exist anymore. But you can also see one of the main features of this attraction's, I would say it's the queue area, but it's also the attraction is this giant stylized vine that the caterpillar crawls down. Um, really is kind of part of what you see while you're in the queue is you're seeing the preview of the ride with all these cars traveling down this vine. Not only from where you're standing in the queue, but you see it while you're walking by. So it, And you also would see it from Holiday Hill um, and later from the Matterhorn as well. So it's it's what draws people to the attraction. It, it would sell the attraction to people because you have to remember back then, people had a choice about where to spend their money in Disneyland and the rides did have tickets. So um, this was a C park ticket for 40 cents when it opened. Um, later became um, a D ticket as well. It downgraded or sorry, it downgraded to a B ticket in 1971 for 25 cents. So it, they would want people to be able to see a preview of the ride because then it would entice them to spend their money to go on the ride, which is not something we have today. So it's not something we often think about. But yeah, I just think it's also interesting too, because now this entire structure has a roofing system on it so for me if i was viewing this in the 50s this would be more enticing than how it looks today well it doesn't have a roofing structure well it, it has it, a tree it does for the this section so you have a tree right here right where the dandelions are there's like a massive tree like either on one of these sides has it's, wood yeah, it's on but there's side. all of this is enclosed as for safety ramps, they basically have put oh. platforming around it. Yeah. So what I'm, yes. what I'm talking about is the, the vine structure itself has probably like five feet of exterior pathing now, just in case, because this ride does have a tendency, and if they have to offload people, doing it on the vine part is actually pretty dangerous. Oh, Kirk. So, okay. Well, that, that is something we'll have to get into next episode, because we call we like to call that the safety railing debacle that happened in in 2010 and it's it was massively controversial with disneyland fans and also very very sad so we'll definitely get to all the history of exactly how that went down uh in next episode for sure um the other thing that we were talking about is the giant pink mushroom ticket booth so i mentioned you can purchase tickets and this is something that's pointed out pretty often um how this ticket booth still exists i think there was a cast member that said it was their crying booth now which actually made me really sad so be kind to your cast members people just saying um but this is what it used to look like and you can see it says ticket book holders there and uh with a giant storybook paying homage to that original storyline of um alice in wonderland by lewis carroll 
So now it is this yellow ticket booth. They've repainted it and don't have sell tickets out of it anymore. And it, they actually moved it because it was closer to the center of the queue. If you look in this picture, that shows pretty well. It was more towards the center, and now they've moved it kind of to the end in the corner where the attraction curves around. So that has changed over time. But yeah, those ticket booths. That's cool. Yeah. So that was the queue. Do you have anything else for the queue before we move on to maybe the ride vehicles? I do not have anything for the queue. It's pr it's pretty sparse. It's gravel. It's some fake plants. It's some actual plants. You get the ticket booth mushroom, and we are staring into uh, the first section of the ride, but we haven't entered yet. Yeah, they, the only other thing I would say is they used to have those big leaves that they would use for shade, like you can see in this picture of uh, Walt Disney on opening day. I have, that, I have that video up. We will have to watch that once we actually <laughs> get through the construction of this, but yes, my goodness. Yes. Oh, it's it's a gem of a video, for sure. Um, alrighty, so let's talk a little bit about the ride vehicles. Now, um, these vehicles... Claude Coates wanted to try to draw in as many pieces, touch points with the film as possible. So he originally had planned to make these cars into rectangular playing cards cars. Um, Walt Disney looked at it and said, no, uh, do a caterpillar. He was like, no, we're not doing that. Uh, so Coates decide, designed a caterpillar. And the interesting part about this is that uh, Disney legal... Uh, said well, you got to file for a patent and he's like no it's Walt Disney's idea I didn't come up with a caterpillar and they're like you designed it so you got to file the patent so he did in May 8th of 1959 and it was issued in January 12th of 1960 which was two years after the ride was completed but when he got the patent he then sold it back to Disney uh, Disneyland Incorporated for ten dollars because I think and everybody's like only ten dollars I was like well he didn't think it was his idea so he was probably yeah he was just like, just take this back. It's fine, you know. Um, do you want to talk about the ride vehicle? Yeah, I have. Um, so after Claude Coates had designed the Caterpillar-shaped ride vehicle, we get Blaine Gibson, who has been notable for so many of the sculptures, including when we talked a little bit about Pirates. He sculpted the actual ride vehicle themselves, the Caterpillar. Uh, and when it was finished, there were 16 of these beautiful two-tone molded cars uh, each with the folded cross arms in the front. He's a very moody caterpillar when you look at him. Uh, and he's got that sneering kind of face. We talked about the original spook houses. Uh, these ride vehicles had to be extended because typical spook houses were only one bench seat. So meaning that you could only fit two or three guests max. So to double the occupancy of that, they decided to add a second row, but that leads to a couple of challenges, specifically mechanical. And, and for these vehicles, they're going to be the first ones to utilize additional space and foot brakes. Uh, to, yeah, if you're listening <laughs> no. to this, Kate is showing a picture of one of the ride attendants with his foot on the Caterpillar. So it stops <laughs> when they're doing like a disembarking in the load section. Uh, but so... We need to get some sort of ride system that we can utilize either Snow White or Mr. Toad uh, or Pinocchio uh, in that same single rail electric system with block zones. Uh, but we end up getting 
uh, Bob Gurr working under Roger Brogy talking about some of the mechanical aspects. I have a direct quote. Roger Brogy was the key shop mechanic that I worked for, and I was given the job of designing all the show action equipment and automatic doors in Alice. It was all done in April and May of 1958. We got the car frames with one horsepower motors, Spicer 44-2 rear ends with 38-to-1 gearing from Aero Development, but I had to adapt them to the style of the Caterpillar bodies. We made them a longer version than the standard ride vehicles so we could get four seats instead of two. The track had a very simple block zone control system with 48 bolts in a guide rail, and the track was 764 linear feet long. The Alice ride always seemed to be slower than other dark rides at four feet per second because the heavier cars and also lowest gear ratio. That was so it could get up the incline that the ride's second floor had. The minimum performance in any ride is a cold start on an incline, and if the ride shuts down, it has to restart. So I actually found a picture too. Hang on. Uh, these were not only these axles that Bob Gurr is talking about. I uh, remember Bob Gurr was the uh, inventor of the Gurrmobile and many different Frankenstein mechanic uh, and cars for Main Street when we got our Main Street vehicle. But the Dana 44 or the Spicer 44, it's the same exact thing. It's this rear axle assembly, which is going to give power to the back wheels so that it can push the drivetrain forward. And, uh, Interestingly enough, the Spicer 44 or the Dana 44, same exact thing, you can use them interchangeably, was used in the 1955-56 Ford Thunderbird, the Jeep CJ7, the Jeep Comanche and Cherokee in 76 and 92. Uh, there's a lot of other Jeeps, but it was also used in the Cobra, the Dodge Viper, Chevy Blazers, and a Corvette. So if what I now when I look at those vehicles... They're just fancier caterpillars. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I am showing you guys uh, some of those patents that uh, Claude oh, that's cool. you filed, found. Yeah, filed for as well. And my understanding as I read through this was they made the capacity with two rows versus, you know, one with, with be able to fit four adults in it. Um, they did that mainly because it was slower and it was slower moving. And so that would be increasing capacity. But it's interesting because from what I hear you saying from Bob Gurr is more like they, it was slower because it was like, it had to go up and down inclines. Well, it, it was. Yeah. So, so, so think about the gear ratio, right? About the fact that they put it in the lowest gear so that it could, it's the same thing like your your parents teach you this if you come in a, into like a snowy part of the world when you're driving is you can put your car into a lower gear when you're driving because you get more grip, right. more grit. Like if you're in a higher gear, you're going to have less power to the wheels. The same thing can be said about our dark ride vehicle trying to get up that incline. So they purposely needed it to have uh, that extra. But again, you're losing out at that four feet per second uh, speed. Right. Which, I mean, nowadays, I don't know what they would end up doing. They'd probably end up making this a track list, although I've never seen a track list with an incline, so that would be interesting, too. I don't know if they would do track lists with it going down the vine like that because it seems like it's too much of a risk. It would have to have some sort of safety bumpers on the side where it could Yeah, I'm, I'm saying, like, if they were going to, if they were going to make 
this style of dark ride because they really don't do it anymore. The only style of dark rides that they've been putting out, if you think about uh, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, you think about in Tokyo Disneyland with uh, Beauty and the Beast, like almost all of the new dark rides, they're all trackless. Uh, Rise of the Resistance, trackless. Like, I don't know why, but for some reason, I, I th- it's probably the ride vehicle shape and size. They could get a much larger shape and size and have the ability to turn and move those vehicles in really unique sequences, which could change the way that you're even. I mean, we've talked about this in the past. When you have a guided rail system, you control the optics of where the ride vehicle and where your audience is looking. Where in trackless, uh, you do that, but you need more of a 360 approach to each and every set piece that you design. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I found a cool control panel picture with all the block break zones. So it shows like all the, yeah, it shows all the segmented out. Uh, It looks like an S that's cut. And each one of these segments is where they can just allot certain electricity. So if they ever needed to stop, each one of these little segmented stops are a block zone. So you can see how a ride gets disseminated out to each one of these zones. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah. I love that. If you go on the people mover, it's probably the most apparent one that I can see uh, that shows uh, they use block zones as well, but it's different because they can continuously put power it at any one segmented spot. So there are technically zones or areas, but it's all one continuous loop. Uh, but you can see that control panel really easily if you go to uh, Walt Disney World. When you're when you're exiting, uh, look to your left on the escalator and you'll be able to see a really cool diagram with a layout of all the different zones. I don't think I can think can't think of any other older attraction where they have an old school control panel like the people mover does. So, yeah, I mean, there's quite a few in Disneyland, but <laughs> Disney. Yeah. Oh, that's good. oh, goodness. Um, alrighty. So that is the ride vehicle. Should we talk about the ride itself? No. Yes. Yeah, we can talk about the ride. Okay. I'm into it. Uh, do, is this the point where do we want to? Because I have a lot of like what it actually looked like. Uh. But we can also, I, I almost feel like this VR trip is the best way to see it. Yeah. Let, let's do the little VR virtual reality kind of tour through it. And then we can go back and kind of fill in some details because they'll give people context about what it is. I think I think we can, I think we can pause through in certain scenes. Like if we want to disseminate it out in the block zones, like we can by going through each one segmented section and then showing actual photos if you don't have them, I know I have some, so I can, like, scoop between the two. Yeah, I have a couple. Um, before we show that, though, I have a couple of just generic things about this ride. Um, so, um, well, and do we want to show opening day before we show that? Because it's... No. No? Don't show. Don't show. Well, I mean, I guess, like, we're going on the attraction. <laughs> we usually, like, build the attraction. Um, but, yeah, here, hang on. I, I have Walt Disney... With opening day, I just have to make sure it's okay. muted because there is, yeah. Do you want to talk about it? Because I this is like runs about maybe fifty seconds. Yeah. So, um, so during opening day, we have uh, Walt Disney had this little ceremony for uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland, and they rode down Main Street USA in um, 
like a, a horse and buggy essentially and then they had uh, a little little alice <laughs> and a gigantic key that was brought out by a very scary looking white rabbit that looks nothing that you could that you can see the hair it looks like donnie darko <laughs> is handing the key to alice but this key shape i swear is so similar to our earlier concept art of the walkthrough key it's they look the same so yeah. i think that's kind of funny with uh, it comes out of the, the rabbit hole right like, he's like that's he's like popping out of his rabbit hole with this gigantic key which kind of bends a little it's bit. yeah it's like flimsy it's like, very like, hard. like what is it made out of paper <laughs> Like what, like 20 weight? <laughs> and so Walt Disney holds it for a little while. White Rabbit gives it to uh, Alice and uh, <laughs> Walt shakes the White Rabbit's hand. He doesn't look anything like the White Rabbit from the film. He's literally like a costume rabbit from like the Halloween. Yeah, this is definitely just a random. And the best part is coming up right now. So imagine <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this, imagine the White Rabbit is like a giant latex one piece mask with half the back of the head exposed so you can see this person's like full neck hair like it's a human clearly underneath there and they're in almost like a felt onesie white onesie and the the coloration of the costume and the mask are completely different so this is obviously off the shelf halloween mask that they were like oh that'd be a good idea and found what they could uh, and then Walt Disney sits in, which I think I think this is 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 good that they have to follow the white rabbit down the rabbit hole. So the T bar, uh, you have the white rabbit on the first row, and then you have Alice and Walt Disney in the second row for the very first inaugural ride. Behind them is Mickey, a very scary Mickey and Minnie, and it looks like Chip, or is that Chip and Dale? It's another rabbit, like a brown one. It's a brown rabbit? <laughs> I think so. It, it's like, they're like weird looking, I don't know, they look like squirrel characters. The one has a top hat on. I don't know what they are. But but then he But he flicks the back of the rabbit's like rubber mask ears and they like, like they like twitch. When it, and he's like clearly just like messing with the person that they put in the uh, the rabbit head. Well, so I'm going to preface this by everybody's kind of saying, like, those characters look scary, uh, Mickey and Minnie especially. And yes, well, so to give you a little bit of context about the characters in Disney, um, on opening day in 1955, which was three years before this, they Disney didn't actually own any act characters, costumes, like, at all. They licensed them, they leased them, or they licensed them to the, the characters to the Ice Capades, and then they rented the costumes back from the Ice Capades for opening day at Disneyland. And remember by this time, they're like out of money. So it took a few years. Um, you can kind of see it. Kirk is showing you what those costumes look like. And that's why they look kind of scary because the ice dancers had to be able to see out of them. So a lot of their heads were made out of mesh and they didn't have any like body suits because they had to have mobility as ice dancers, right? It's it's so the like... cut lips for me. <laughs> I mean, they have... They have... They have three massive serrations in their upper lip to the point where it's just a giant triangle missing from their lips, both on Mickey and Minnie. And then there's another one right in between their eyes is just another gouge mark. It is very strange. 
to look at. Yeah, because it's all like mesh so that the, the ice dancers can see out of them. So they did use these costumes for a while um, because they just couldn't they just couldn't afford to get their own. By the time Alice in Wonderland rolls around, I believe that they have made their own costumes, but clearly with like a similar mold, but without all of the mesh, right? By 1958, they've at least like had their own costumes at Disneyland, but they're clearly modeled after the same one. Wait, what is the deal with... Is that why is Ricky... Mickey's... In the opening day of Alice in Wonderland, Mickey's poking at the rabbit's ears too. What is the obsession with poking the rabbit's ears? I don't know. It's... They're just they're tempting, I guess. I don't know. But um, so just to give a little bit of context before we move on here, these costumes didn't really get standardized until about 1961, 1962. And that's when we start to see those giant head characters come in. But at least they all start to look a little bit more uh, like Disney characters. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take my giant plastic heads any day over what they had prior because it was yeah. that was a nightmare. So like you can see here, this is this is more of the 1960s and you can see uh, walrus or walrus from most of the carpenters there as well. And then there's the Mad Hatters, this giant rubber head and the arms really weren't functional at that point because the costume head went over the um, cast members shoulders at that point. So um, that's what I love that man had a walrus standard. Yeah, I, quite like a while. Apparently, he came out for, uh, like, a hot second. They brought him out for some party. I don't remember when, but I was like, are you, what? How is this a thing? I I think it's, it should be a life goal for you to get a photo with the walrus at some point, so. I already got Lotso. I know Disneyland Paris, you have a good shot at seeing the Cheshire Cat because he's out and about quite a bit as a costume character. So Cheshire Cat's, like, up there as, as like, one of them. Walrus is, I feel, impossible unless I get into an archive and get in the suit myself. You never know. Like Merlin showed back up in Disneyland's latest parades. Which dances something crazy up in there. I don't know what he's doing. He's getting down. (laughs) Certainly wild. All right. um, Related back into this attraction. So that was opening day. I do have a Disneyland promo from uh, 1958. This is actually something they handed out in the beginning of um, when people would enter the park, they handed them this card that says, see and enjoy Disneyland's newest attraction. And it came out the same time as the Columbia sailing ship. And also uh, the Grand Canyon diorama was, was featured on there as well. But it says an exciting new attraction in the happiest kingdom of them all. This is like the same thing that I read you guys before travel down the rabbit hole and whatnot. So um, that came from this little handout that they would give people Um Trying to entice them to spend their money to go on these rides because we still had the ticket book phase, right? Yeah, you get them in, but you still need to get them to go on some rides. (laughs) Um, I want to note before we kind of get into the actual physical attraction of the 1958 version that the Queen of Hearts is not in this original show anywhere, like uh, at all. Um, And so that's why Claude Coates was going to make the vehicle into playing cards to kind of tie back in that part of the story. But because the playing cards never happened, we never got really that tie in with the Queen of Hearts. Um, And so Walt said Alice in Wonderland left the visitor um, share, let the visitor share the nonsensical experiences of Lewis Carroll's bewitched heroine. 
entrance is through the storied rabbit hole, which leads to the upside down room and the oversized chamber, after which you pass through the Tolji woods and meet the Cheshire Cat, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, through a maze of cards and into the fearsome presence of the Red Queen, who threatens to roll someone's head with every breath. So this quote was so interesting to me because I was like, wait a minute. He's saying you're going through the maze of cards and into the fearsome presence of the Red Queen. Do that at why did he say this in the quote? Well, if you look back at that concept art that you pulled up that you said you had kind of a colorized version, I think the Red Queen was very much planned to be here because you can see that you can see her with the cards there right after the bad tea party. There was going to be the Red Queen and the cards before you exited the building. And somewhere along the way in this attraction, not only do we never get this caterpillar, I don't think in that original version, but we don't get these Red Queen and the cards at all. So really interesting transformation. Um, just that I wanted you guys to note that before we kind of get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, so so here's going to be the scenes that we go through as uh, there's about nine, nine major scenes. Outside slash loading area, which we've talked extensively. Two is a dark rabbit hole. Three will be the upside down room. Four will be the Cheshire Cat into the keyhole door. Uh, five will be the Flowers and Golden Afternoon segment. Six, the uh, Tolji Wood. Seven, the Mad Tea Party. Eight, Explosions and Signs. And then nine, the Doors to the Outside. Yeah. And they will, throughout the attraction, you would hear the actual voice of Catherine Beaumont which is the uh, child actor who did the the live reference footage and then the voice of Alice in Wonderland. And you can see her here holding a little kitten in front of Mary Blair's uh, concept art. And also you can see right behind her is from, if you were, I think that was the last, um, the last episode that we did. There is the Walrus and the Carpenter model sheet down there. Model sheet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can see Catherine Beaumont, um, and you'll hear her voice. And her voice is used even today, too, in the attraction, which we'll get into in our next episode. It's, I'm into the rabbit hole. Now, i got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, due to the efforts of Don Carson, meticulously recreated not only a virtual reality version of the 1958 attraction, but also just a computer simulation that we can physically uh, watch and ride through but if you have one of those fancy vr headsets you can go on youtube and go on don carson's channel and check this out uh, because there's not a ton of photos uh but they did their best to piece everything together to recreate the attraction in its opening day form so this is actually really amazing to have that since we don't have any video footage of the ride that we can show you this is incredible yeah and and if there's actually a, a, a segment where he uh, is showing how they colorized rooms, I don't know if you watched any part where they show source material and how then they drew it on top. It's so accurate. This is fantastic. So this is like as good as it gets to a POV of 1958. Yes. So we start out and we're headed down into the rabbit hole. Um, and there's not a lot here, but they did have a big convex uh, mirror that would make you look like you were upside down in this room, much like Alice when she's actually falling down the rabbit hole uh, and in the movie. We, we do have the audio uh, silenced here because it does use IP from Disney. 
Uh, but you, it's not just like a blank hallway. Uh, there is some narrative that's pushing us through here as well. Yeah, she says, uh, Catherine Beaumont says, my adventures in Wonderland began when I followed the white rabbit down the rabbit hole. Down, down, down is what she says. Now we're entering into the upside down room. You can notice uh, chairs, tables. There's also inkwell and a fishbowl. Looked like it was like bubbling. Uh, the fishbowl and the inkwell looked like it was dripping as well. And then all the way at the end uh, is the white rabbit on a trumpet or a bugle. And as we turn around, it the other thing that you notice here is, and and I want to highlight this just for two seconds. Leave that leave that uh, that photo up. This time period of 1958 is important because we get the introduction of uh, black lights. So black lights and black light paint allow for very vibrant features, which didn't exist for some of the pre-existing Disneyland attractions. So they use that extensively in here to, to make things pop. And I just think it's kind of cool. And it does give you very much the vibe, though, of some of the other attractions, specifically, I think about Pinocchio, and I think about uh, Mr. Toad as Dark Rides, and there's lots of flats, but in here we're getting a lot of sculpted 3D pieces as well, not just mainly flats, which is pretty much all Pinocchio and Mr. Toad is. Mr. Well, uh, you mean Peter Pan and um, Snow White and Mr. Mr. Toad were all kind of flats, but Pinocchio was not. Pinocchio had 3D sculptures, remember, because it was... 1984 was when it came out. So oh, Pinocchio okay. actually has quite a few of 3D ones. No, it's okay. But um, but you're right. All the original Fantasyland dark rides only had kind of those 2D painted flats. Um, and it wasn't until much later, till when we got new Fantasyland, that they ended up having the 3D figures that we know them to have now. So it's the fact that this ride had these kind of 3D um, sculpted elements to it was a big deal at the time. Those people hadn't seen any rides like it in Disney before. Mm -hmm. So you go past a section with a kitchen and then into a very, very large keyhole. Now these ones are flats here, but... So they had a 15-foot table and a six-foot cushion that the Cheshire Cat actually sat on top of. And I think it's interesting that you see the speaker in his mouth. Because he did oh, that's very obvious. say yeah. things. Um, but he's sitting on a 3D cushion, but it's kind of like a flat of him. And uh, and so this is called the oversized room. So you just feel like you have shrunk down. Uh, and this narration, the narration for the upside down room was, then I was in an upside down room where the floor was where the ceiling should be. And then, yeah, they had some kind of creepy dialogue for this um, Cheshire Cat. And they did make him a little less creepy over time. But yeah, <laughs> that's why he has a speaker in his mouth that's pretty visible there. The caterpillar then goes through the giant door lock from the film and into the garden and the flower room, which is what comes up next. Um, and it's in this room that the caterpillar then climbed to the second floor where the guests are serenaded by the flowers singing Golden Afternoon, which we talked about in our previous episode for Alice in Wonderland. Um and at the top of the incline where you can see there, the dandy lion popped up with a roar as well. So there was some very basic animation. It was more like, if you think, like pneumatic, like the Jungle Cruise was originally. It wasn't audio animatronics. That didn't come in until 1963. We're in 1958. So they didn't have audio animatronics yet. They just had some very simple pneumatic kind of like move back and forth kind of animation. 
uh, with some of these structures inside Alice in Wonderland. And you can definitely see that the, the paint colors are not quite as vibrant as you would see today. Um, but they did try to capture the spirit of the film and some of the, the look of the film because, again, it's Claude Coates who worked on the film, um, as well as Ken Anderson. Um, there's a couple couple people that worked on the ride, the attraction that also worked on the film. So they tried to stay as close to it as possible. Okay, here's, I found my Bob Kerr quote. Uh, so he remembers creating the mechanical workings for the Alice ride show action equipment. So these are like the moving parts specifically of this golden afternoon garden. In those days, we called them gags. They, there were many pieces of equipment and all of them were single action pneumatics. Something went up and down or out and back. Very simple kind of gags. And in the flower garden, we had these wild flowers waving. I first used aluminum rods with the flowers attached to the top in some rubber mounts. We had electric motors with little connecting rods that would connect to an eccentric and all the flowers would move at a certain frequency. By the time we had tested and running, more and more of the flowers broke and fell down. I learned that the fatigue life of aluminum. I got some fiberglass fishing rods and replaced the aluminum. In the woods, we had a birdcage bird and a pop-up character accordion bird. It was on a pneumatic cylinder that popped the bird up and down. We wanted to have the vehicle trigger that action, so we got some rubber uh, and we used them as activating mechanisms. So you straight up are running in the caterpillar, running over those hoses, and they would uh, they would actually operate the air cylinders so that it looked like the cars hit them but were actually opened just before the cars hit them. So they used them for the doors as well. So you would literally go over these hoses and it would feel like you hit them, but really you were activating the opening. Um, and then even the Mad Hatter and March Hare were pop-ups. They were very similar. You just hit the air and got 100% flow to the Skinner valves and Carter cylinders. They would just go up and the valve would shut and they'd come back down. And I remember Roger Brogy Trader was responsible for installation of all of the mechanicals here in Alice. No, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's so interesting. I know with uh, that list, I wonder if they had found that they had a lot of problems with uh, Mr. Toad. The doors, they couldn't get the timing of them quite right. So the cars would crash into them quite. <laughs> they. The, the, basically, the pistons that were opening them were not strong enough to do it fast enough, so the cars would just, like, slam right into the doors. What they did was they put, like, two of those pistons on it, and then it became too powerful, and the doors would, like, slam open, and then it would, like, damage things. <laughs> so, like, they had a really hard time with the timing of the doors and getting it right with the cars. So I think that maybe they learned a few things with all of those dark rides that happened in 1955, and then they adapted new technology for Alice in Wonderland so that the doors would have better timing. Well, if you think about it, right, every single time that the doors open, it's completely independent, right? There's no sequencing or timing needed. It's the ride vehicle has to go over it, and therefore the ride vehicle is always going to go over it. Again, the beauty of early Disney Imagineers. Aluminum rods break. Go get fiberglass fishing poles. Yeah. Uh, how do we tie the doors? Go get the gas station hoses. <laughs> well, and Crazy. I, I 
I did a, a post fairly recently about how um, they didn't have enough pieces to mill, make the carousel progress models, the women that were in the model shop. And so they, her dad, I think it was Leo de Toombs, his dad brought in a bag of like old earrings and like they took out all the pieces of the metal from the earrings and they used that to make a lot of the original model for the carousel of progress. And so Walt Disney always said it was made on earrings because they <laughs> use it. And all the, like the secretaries in the office like brought them pieces and stuff because like they didn't have any supplies. They had like paper and cardboard and glue and paint, but they didn't have any like metal pieces. Like where are you going to get that from? So such an ingenious way of using what you've got to to get the job done and upcycle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Alrighty. So we went into the flowers. Now we're headed into what the told you would. Mm-hmm. So this is the largest and darkest part of the attraction. Um, but you can see we're still in the, the flowers here and we're going up that incline uh, headed up onto the second story above Mr. Toad's wild ride. So now we're headed into the, the told you would and they had a lot of the flat two dimensional scenery characters. But they also had quite a few here that were those 3D characters as well. Um including the horn birds, umbrella bird, a birdcage bird, an accordion owl. There's the birdcage bird there. Um, but again, those characters all had that simple movement, similar to the Jungle Cruise, where it's just a pneumatic uh, single motion movement. Do you want to talk about where we're headed next? Sure. Uh, very merry birthday to you. I love the giant teacups as well. You know, it's like giant and, teacups. You get the March hair. Again, these are flats, but you get... And hang on, there was one thing I found about uh, why the flats are more effective when they use black light. Let me see if I can find that again. So uh, in 1958, the ride sequence benefited from that ultraviolet black lights because it wasn't really used at all in any of the 1955 ones. So they, it allowed them to, in most scenes, assemble layers of flats painted on that glow in the gloom, and that kind of gave them more of a dimension to them, right? So even though that they were flats, they painted certain sections differently with that uh, photoreactive ultralight paint, which uh, helped. It also, they could, they could layer in sequence in a way that could distort things as well. So doing kind of like optical illusions with your eyes, particularly furniture, uh, things that were hung upside down, and then like the strange birds, all of the other Holgy Wood creations, the huge teacups, and again, our March Hare and Mad Hatter get more depth to them uh, rather than just like a standard flat. Right. I think I have a, what were you gonna say? a good picture of it too. Oh, I'm... T- I was just saying something to note about this section is that you're physically on the tea table, like you're driving down it on the caterpillar or running on the tea table, if you will. And so Yeah, but that's what that's what Alice does in the film, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're you're not like sitting next to it, you're physically on the tea table. So they have like teacups that kind of move out of the way and adjust for you going by. Um and they also <laughs> a lot of the the Mad Hatter, the March Hare would just kind of they had some simple animation. They got a little bit more in 1960, this like pouring tea effect. That wasn't in the original version in 1958. That came in in 1960 where they just made a couple of adjustments trying to make the characters look less scary. So if you see the one that Kirk has there, 
is more of the um but is more of the later version but you can see this is the earlier version of the march hair and uh and then the mad so he looks a little happier in the 1960s version versus what it is now and so kirk has the like 3d model but this is the actual attraction here is what this looked like let me pull it back for you and this is a really ingenious ingenious way to pretend that liquid is flowing it's literally like a drill bit so think of how a drill bit looks uh and they just made the liquid in the same sequence of a twisted spiral so as the spiral twists just like this sharpie pen you can see it's actually rotating around but this gives it the the effect that it's cascading down into the teacup yeah so after this scene um we have a really interesting sequence where it it seems like the cake is supposed to be exploding <laughs> so we see some um see some things on the walls that show up that look like we, we kind of go through like the teacups and the and the teapots and we see the dormouse in the teapot and then after we go through this cracked teapot we enter in this area where the cake is now like exploding so wait would you say that this is a crackpot i guess you um and you see giant kind of like cows on the wall where the teacups exploded and then we see some told you wood science um like kind of you're like trying to figure out how to get out at this point and then we go through the series of doors that get progressively smaller and each one coincides with a goofy yell which is basically Disney's uh, version of the Wilhelm yell. If you're familiar with that, it's like a, a yell, a famous yell that was used in a lot of films. Um, but this this goofy yell happens as these doors open. And the last one that you hear in the 1958 version is still in the Disneyland attraction today. Um, That's funny. Yeah. So why did he put the goofy yell in there? A lot of people are like, oh, it's the Mad Hatter, like, you know, yelling or whatever. But it's clearly goofy. And... Claude Coates' son, Alan Coates, said that his dad added the yell basically just for fun. He said, dad wanted the guests to exit the ride smiling, so he added a funny, goofy yell from the goofy cartoons at each smaller door. My brother, Lee, and I would always come out laughing. So it was basically just to make you smile before you left the attraction. So that, that's all it was. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah. No. That that funny enough, I only know anything about the Wilhelm scream because there used to be a beer that was called uh, it was like a pumpkin beer from Magic Hat that was called like Wilhelm something, right? And it came from a cowboy film and it gets sampled all the time like George Lucas uses it a lot in Indiana Jones and the Star Wars films. It's like a scream that is so iconic. It's it's used in so many films. But yeah, that's kind of that's I never would have thought to put two and two together with the goofy yell being like their version of the Wilhelm scream, which it pretty much is. Yeah, it gets oh, used yeah. a lot. Yeah. And a lot of people um, when I made a post of this, a lot of people were posting like, you know, in the comments and they're like, it's the Wilhelm scream. It's, I'm like, it's really not, though. It's not. But it's not. <laughs> no, I didn't say it that way. No, you should have. <laughs> you should have, Dave. No, but if you hold them up against each other and you listen to one side by side, they're not at all alike. But the goofy yell itself, or the goofy yodel, as some people will call it, Disney does use that in so many movies yeah, and shows yeah. and cartoons throughout. And not just with Goofy, with all kinds of things. It just became kind of the standard yell that they use whenever somebody is crashing through or falling or anything like that. So, 
Yeah. Or like the droid scream. Yeah, the droid, the R2-D2 scream gets used a lot too in the, the Star Wars one. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so after we go and we crash through all these doors, that's pretty much it. You go down the winding leaf to the bottom of the loading platform. And that, in 1958, that is where that ride ended. Yeah, it just does a little hairpin turn and you're done. Yeah, I think I have a picture that shows you a better view of exactly how that worked. But so you'll see here at the end, there was these two doors. So you would think that the cars go in there, but that's actually just where they did maintenance on the vehicles. So they weren't a part of the attraction at all at that time. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Distory with Kate and Kirk. We really enjoyed uh, diving into the 1958 version of Alice in Wonderland and uh, seeing how things were a little bit different than they are today. But next episode, we'll be going into the 1983-84 changes and all the way up to its current version, seeing how they changed everything with new Fantasyland, or maybe not everything. So we'll uh, see you next week. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.